the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. I think we should all stand and give Colonel Vindman a, a, a show of how much we supported him. Stand up and clap for Vindman. Get your get up there. What, no love for Sondland? Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for Inter- International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of books including Wiki at War and Private Sector Public War, joins us now. Jim, are you uh, standing in salute of Lieutenant Colonel Vindman? No, you know, we actually, we have several military uh, veterans here at um, at the Heritage Foundation. I went to West Point, some of them went to Naval Academy, some of them went to other schools, and we chat, you know, because I don't want to see like I'm just living inside my own head. And it's amazing how to the person, people feel like his behavior was just inappropriate, that it crossed the line of appropriate civil-military relations. And you are expected to say what you think. That's the way our military works. It's very unique in the world that you give honest feedback. You tell people exactly what you think. And then once the boss has made a decision, you own that decision and you support the boss. And the only exception to that is if you see something that's illegal or immoral. And then you and then you have you have two very clear options. You report it on your chain of command and you're done. Or you resign. And this person didn't do any of the appropriate things. Essentially, they substituted their own opinion for the president of the United States. They publicly discussed information which, which rightfully should remain privilege of the president of the United States in, in a public – they leaked information to other people to try to discredit the president. It was completely inappropriate behavior. It's not a mark of – of of uh, anything that should be respected or admired. I, I see. It's it's fairly clear to me. I don't know why it's so unclear inside the Beltway. There, you serve at the pleasure of the president of the United States. What's unclear about that uh, that threshold? Yeah, you know, I mean that, that's absolutely. This is the there is no right to serve in the White House. You get appointed by the president. There's not even a congressional. Uh, review of this. So you 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 hire the people that you want. You fire the people that you want. So saying. Um, Ambassadors, you know, they have to go through a confirmation process, but they serve at the pleasure of the president. There's just, and you can fire them for any reason you want. You can not like their hair, but because at the end of the day, who's responsible? Who gets who gets called to the carpet when things go right or wrong? The president of the United States, not those other people. Well, and, and so it, the president gets to decide who serves him. Yeah, it's it's just remarkable to me that they're projecting onto Trump what they're actually doing, which is attempting to dismiss constitutional order. So the president of the United States is not supposed to assert executive privilege during uh, the impeachment proceeding, even though it's his right to do so, because that obstructs Congress. And so there's the Congress putting itself in the position of the executive, telling the executive what to do. That's not separate and coequal. And now with respect to personnel decisions in his branch of government, he is not supposed to be able to make personnel decisions 
that any other president would make. So the question is, if if it were a president you liked, would you suggest that he shouldn't and couldn't assert his privileges, couldn't make his own personnel decisions? Of course they wouldn't. Well, look, um, Earl Matthews, who is dedicated, committed supporter of the president of the United States, has worked super hard from this administration since day one as a reserve officer, got fired from the NSC for reasons that had nothing to do with the president or any of this other stuff. Earl's a great guy. I throw myself under a bus for him, but that's how the system works. I mean, he didn't get fired. The DOD essentially said, we're pulling him back. But she had the right to do. And that's the other thing is, is there was no adverse action taken against any of these people. None of those things are adverse actions. Being moved out of the White House is not an adverse action. It's just being moved. I got moved. I got moved lots of times. I didn't get a choice. You know, it's just the way it works in the system. So well, Maybe uh, Vindman can catch on as Defense Minister of Ukraine since he was offered that gig previously. Let, let me uh, turn to something else. Democrat debate on Friday night in New Hampshire asked about the uh, decision to greenlight the strike on Soleimani and all of the leading lights of the left, Biden and Buttigieg and Bernie, said no, they would not have greenlighted that strike. Well, the one thing that I think has really gotten lost in this whole conversation is somehow we got into this debate about whether there was another attack that was imminent or not. And imminent is not a standard about whether you take out a terrorist or not. If they are a, a lawful target, and they're organizing illegal terrorist activities, which could result in the death of American citizens or destruction of property. It doesn't matter if it's five seconds, five minutes, five days, or five weeks. It's just like we have this argument, the thing is they, they would take videos of ISIS fighters running around behind the battlefield, you know, like getting in a truck or something, and, and they get blown up by a drone. They go, oh, that's terrible. How do we, they weren't hurting anybody. I said, that is not the standard. I mean, you don't, you cannot, if a soldier doesn't have a finger on the trigger, he can't shoot him. They're a combatant. If they're a combatant, they're always a target. Otherwise, everybody in ISIS and al-Qaeda and in the uh, Iranian government would be a dishwasher. <laughs> Speaking of uh, this whole topic of terrorism and combating terrorism the world over, what was your reaction to what the president had to say about taking out Soleimani, taking out al-Baghdadi, and his State of the Union address last week? So you know, the criticism is this isn't going to solve the problem. And that is true. But it's it's just like operating on a patient doesn't make the patient live. you got to sew them up and give medical care and everything else. But, but taking out the, the tumor is part of the surgery. Taking these guys out obviously degrades the networks, obviously puts them under enormous pressure. Every day they know that they're being hunted. It isn't the be-all and end-all to dealing with transnational terrorism but it is a important component. And if people say, well, it doesn't make a difference, yet we've had one 9-11, we have been hunting these guys for two decades and we haven't had another, um, that is a correlation with causation. I wanted to get your reaction as well to the budget the uh, Wall Street Journal reported on over the weekend. The plan would uh, increase military spending by three-tenths of a percent uh, for the forthcoming fiscal year, fiscal year 2021 while lowers in other areas, but particularly with respect to military spending, um, reducing foreign aid, higher outlays for defense preparedness and for veterans benefits. I mean, are you generally happy with the uh, spend decisions on the defense side by this administration? Yeah, well, I've been in Washington for a long time now. I don't get really excited about president's budgets because so, I mean, politically, you know, politics is the wrong word. From a from a fiscal responsibility standpoint, it it sounds about right. 
of what we need to do because it's not only about getting our priorities straight, but it's also about reducing, getting on a glide path to reducing the overall national debt, which is very important. So, but, but the reality is, is what's the chances that Congress will even do a budget, let alone do one that reflects responsible fiscal policy? Uh, I'm going to leave that as a rhetorical question. I wanted to (laughs) ask uh, one more topic area. This new way forward legislation that's been introduced by one of our esteemed congressmen here in Illinois, Chewy Garcia, new way forward, which was essentially handle this problem we have of illegal immigration by removing the illegal part of it. Um, That's essentially what the Democrats are proposing also, but even more importantly than decriminalizing illegal border crossings, would essentially uh, eliminate automatic deportation orders for crimes of moral turpitude and even even some uh, more serious crimes. In addition to ex post facto people who have been deported back into this country if they were deported for a crime that is no longer a deportable crime, if you follow. And I barely do. Right. Yeah. Well, the new way forward is the the old way backward. I mean, the reality is, is illegal immigration in this country has dropped over the last eight months. Because we're not doing any of those things, which were all things we kind of used to routinely do, which is essentially you know, put out an open door. The problem with an open door policy is, is with open borders, is, is how does it how does it end? I mean, you you essentially have you you essentially destroy the notion that the people of a part of the planet get to decide their future, and essentially anybody can go anywhere and do anything. It's it, it, it just defies logic. And, and I'm, I'm thankful that they put it forward because this is, I think, given Americans a very – I'm, I'm nonpartisan. People can vote however they want. But on immigration and border security, they, they're getting a very stark and clear choice between essentially open borders and enforcing the law. And, and they get to choose. And I think every time you see something like the New Forward Act – People are dubbing, doubling down, telling Americans that there, there is only one way forward. Everybody gets health care. It doesn't matter if they're illegal. Anybody can come here. Um, we don't care about your public safety. Uh, or we, we can have ordered liberty. And you, you get to pick. I, I, I think it's a public service that they did this. Uh, I agree with that. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always for being with us. All right. Thanks for having me, brother. Take care. And I know it's gonna be a lovely day. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show i just want to pick up on the conversation we were having with lieutenant colonel jim carafano 
about Vinman and Sondland, the terminations there, and the New York Times reporting about a handful of Republicans tried to go to Trump and get him not to do it, but he did it anyway. You know, uh, again, uh, as we discussed, the idea that the president shouldn't make personnel decisions that are within his power to make. He should uh, allow enemies inside the perimeter, those who have arguably acted poorly, to stay just because what? Just so that uh, the left won't accuse him of authoritarianism without merit, without merit, shouldn't assert executive privilege he has in the context he, he has the right to assert and have a court adjudicate in the context of impeachment, shouldn't make personnel decisions that are executive branch appointments, less the hysteria. Well, you get the hysteria either way. And uh, oh, by the way, on the merits, can we remember something about Vinman? Because nobody cares about Sunlin. He was a Trump appointee. Vinman is part of the fourth branch, the perpetual bureaucracy. Those are the guys they're interested in protecting. Uh, Ron Johnson, back in November, dealing with a hyperventilating Jack, uh, Jake Tapper on CNN, had this to say. Ron Johnson from Wisconsin had this to say about Vinman. President Trump's former Homeland Security Advisor, Tom Bossert, when it came out, White House Chief of Staff reportedly supported this, what is clearly a you have to do this if you want the money. Because literally, and you know this because you have been a strong advocate for military aid to Ukraine, literally, Ukrainians desperately needed this military aid and were dying, were dying, literally being killed between the time that the money was held up in July and when it was released in September. So this isn't just about political games and throwing out names like Alexandra Chalupa. This is about uh, people who desperately need military aid getting it. Jake, there's a war going on and people are dying. You know, President Obama, we authorized $300 million of lethal defensive weaponry. He never supplied it. I I would take things that Colonel Vidman says the great assault as well, because in his testimony, he said the Obama administration provided Javelin weapons. They didn't. It was March 2018 that... 210 uh, javelin weapons were finally approved in terms of uh, right. movement over to Ukraine. So, so again, yes, it doesn't concern that Mulvaney is bringing up question, this question. Why, why weren't the Ukraine? Why weren't the Ukrainians? Why weren't the Ukrainians asking me about where? Where's all the support? But, sir, they it never doesn't brought concern you. Poroshenko didn't in my other meetings. It wasn't until the very end of August, a few weeks before the end of fiscal year. Senator Murphy. Yeah. See, here's the thing about Vindman. He didn't uh, have much to offer during his testimony, and a lot of what he did offer was incorrect. And what he wouldn't offer is who he spoke with about the July 25th phone call, because he had nothing more to say. There was no real value to his testimony other than his characterizations of the policy disagreements he had with the president, because the, the July 25th call transcript had been released, of course. And so he was wrong about the Obama administration providing Javelin missiles. He also as even though he is of Ukrainian heritage, even though he was offered the defense minister position in Ukraine, we found out that during his testimony. He didn't seem to know very much about Burisma, about uh, the oligarch in charge of the second largest privately owned energy company in Ukraine, Zolchevsky. You just heard uh, Ron Johnson reference. Didn't know he was a former cabinet minister. Didn't know much about the investigations to the extent there were any into Burisma. Didn't know a lot about the uh, reality on the ground for somebody that we're supposed to be uh, treating as a um, American hero for telling people, uh, talking out of school about a phone call he was on and then being unwilling to disclose to whom he spoke about the phone call during his testimony. I mean, so what, what, what exactly is the loss here? 
And that's okay, because there was an interesting exchange between Yang and uh, Manic and Pete at the New Hampshire debate on Friday night about, you know, and again, this is from the left perspective, but it's still instructive. The whole argument that they're having as to whether or not uh, Donald Trump is the disease or he's a symptom of the disease. The important thing for the American people to remember is this is 2020. It's an election year. And if the Senate was the jury before... You are the jury now. The American people are the jury that will have the final verdict on this president and on the senators in the GOP who protected him. Pete, Pete, fundamentally you are missing the lesson of Donald Trump's victory. Donald Trump is not the cause of all of our problems, and we are making a mistake when we act like he is. That's right. He is a symptom of a disease that has been building up in our communities for years and decades. And it is our job to get to the harder work of actually curing the disease. Most Americans feel like the political parties have been playing you lose, I lose, you lose, I lose for years. And you know who's been losing this entire time? We have. Our communities have. Our communities' way of life is disintegrating beneath our feet. That's why Iowa, a traditional swing state, went to Trump by almost 10 points. That's why Ohio, a traditional swing state, is now so red that I'm told we're not even going to campaign there. So these... Communities are seeing their way of life get blasted into smithereens. We've automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs and counting. We're closing 30% of New Hampshire's stores and malls. And Amazon, the force behind that, is literally paying zero in taxes. These are the changes that Americans are seeing and feeling around us every day. And if we get to the hard work of curing those problems, we will not just defeat Donald Trump in the fall, but we'll actually be able to move our communities forward. So Andrew Yang, you know, I don't buy his uh, unicorn of a UBI proposal, you know, a thousand bucks a month is going to uh, change America and uh, cure the disease that he describes. Uh, He describes, of course, Trump being a symptom of disease. I would say he's part of the antidote to the disease, of course. But that's the left perspective. But that distinction between whether it, you know, everything is uh, Trump's fault, orange man bad, he's the source of all the problems in America and the world, uh, that's been that's being rejected by a lot of Democrats. He's a symptom. He's a symptom. I don't like him, but it didn't start with him. The problems didn't start with him. And frankly, a lot of the problems have been uh, mitigated under him. Difficult to argue that point when a supermajority of Americans think they're better off this year than they were last and expect to be better off next year than this year. Tough landscape for the Democrats. In point of fact, is it more the case, as Andy Kessler writes, that uh, President uh, Trump uh, is part of the cure, as uh, I would argue, and that it's also President Donald J. McGuffin. (laughs) I love this piece. This was a Hitchcockian term for a kind of distraction, something that moves the plot along. Uh, provides explanation of character's motivation, but it's not significant to the outcome, like a sleight of hand, a distraction. He argues Trump uses these MacGuffins all the time. The way he uses Twitter, the way that he, you know, sort of uh, bulldozes past the uh, sniping of the D.C. press corps or his socialist critics or his never-Trumper critics. Andy Kessler writes, I spent the 1980s in New York, got familiar with his annoyingness before much of the country did. But I've learned to appreciate Mr. Trump's theater of chaos in Hitchcockian plot device, which helps him get things done. Like what? Well, he's moved the Israeli embassy to Jerusalem, installed competent original Supreme Court justices who don't see penumbras and emanations wherever they want, sent Iranian Major General Qasim Soleimani to the terrorist netherworld, And don't forget, he got those UCLA basketball players out of a Chinese prison. To say the least, full freedom of expression has yet to be restored, but the engines of progress are running high and are set to continue, no matter how many speeches Nancy Pelosi tears up. 
President Trump's potential opponents running in the Democratic primaries claim he is the disease and they are the cure. They're missing the ways his MacGuffin game plan is working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, you know, as, as, as the annoyingness that Andy Cusser writes, yeah, you may not always like his communication choices, uh, stylistically, the approach that he takes. But then once you stop looking at that and you start looking at the underlying accomplishments, how about something he didn't mention? 191 federal judges confirmed. Remarkable. Remaking the federal judiciary in the same originalist mold as the two Supreme Court nominees that have been installed on the court during President Trump. President Donald J. McGuffin. Yang is getting to it, but he's not quite there. The rest of the field has no clue. This is the Dan Prof Show. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, there were a lot of uh, interesting moments from the various Democrat socialist candidates on Friday night on the debate stage in New Hampshire. Perhaps uh, none more so than the candidates trying to get to the, uh, I guess, identitarian left of their competitors by decrying how racist America is. And uh, Bernie Bolshevik Bernie Sanders perhaps offered the most strident description of America. Have a racist society from top to bottom impacting health care, housing, criminal justice, education, you name it. And clearly this is an issue that must be dealt with. But in terms of criminal justice, what we have got to do is understand the system is broken is racist. We invest in our young people in jobs and education, not more jails and incarceration. We end the war on drugs, which has disproportionately impacted African Americans, Latinos, and Native Americans. We end private prisons and detention centers in America. Yeah, and part of playing that uh, Bolshevik Bernie clip is to remind you that it's not just mannequin Pete Buttigieg that speaks in strings of cliches. Uh, Bernie does a marvelous job of saying really uh, risable things that uh, are left unexplained or left to the imagination and as well as the characterization uh, just as well. There's a good uh, article by Barton Swain in the Wall Street Journal. He attended a a Bernie rally and he he writes as a uh, incorrigible conservative. There's something exhilarating about attending a Bernie Sanders campaign event for the first time. The crowd is larger, louder, and weirder than the typical primary election gathering. There are sweatshirt-wearing college students, cantankerous geriatrics, bedraggled parents of toddlers, hipsters with multiple facial peerings, and purple-haired 20-somethings of indeterminate gender. When I arrived at the Bernie rally in Milford, New Hampshire, an all-female rock band called the Bad Larrys... Uh, was warming up the crowd with angular chords and indecipherable lyrics. I happened to see a guy holding a book, so I sidled up to uh, up to him and asked what it was. The book was Why Buddhism is True. Of course it was. Of course it was. The point that Barton Sway makes, though, as he develops his piece, is that Bernie may have a uh, high-ceiling, low-floor low problem. And for more on this topic and the... Uh, the contest for the Democrat Socialist nomination more generally. Pleased to be joined again by Jim Pinkerton, 
co-chair of Rate Coalition and contributor to American the American Conservative as well as Breitbart. James, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Morning. Morning. So uh, with respect to Bernie, uh, is it that uh, Obama and Clinton worlds may not have stopped his rabid base from continuing to propel him to the top of the polls, but they've stopped uh, those fleeing candidates like Biden from feeling comfortable going to uh, to Bernie, thus limiting his upside long term in this race? Yeah, I I think Sanders has a clear ceiling. I mean, you know, plenty of uh, Democratic candidates with an insurgent background, such as, for example, George McGovern back in, in, 1980, in 1972, uh, had ceilings and only could really command the plurality of, of Democrats as opposed to the majority, but still got the nomination because uh, all the other Democrats running against them uh, gave up. And, you know, typically, if you don't win, your money dries up and your momentum and so on, you know, dissipates. And so a insurgent Democrat with only a faction of the Democratic Party can can get the nomination. And I think that's the Sanders scenario. And it's it's certainly possible that it will work for him. However, what I don't think he uh, calculated or hoped wouldn't happen is that Michael Bloomberg would be in the race, and Bloomberg uh, is immune, shall we say, from the usual concerns that uh, that candidates have about not being able to raise money. He doesn't care about that, um, and he can sit there with his sixty billion dollars and uh, uh, let Sanders, you know, potentially win New Hampshire uh, on Tuesday night and so on, and still think that he, Bloomberg is a plausible candidate, you know, uh, running against Sanders in, you know, for example, Illinois later on. Uh, I want to pick up our discussion of uh, Bloomberg and Sanders and then maybe bring in a little bit of uh, Manic and Pete as well. But Bloomberg and Sanders is interesting to me because in uh, many respects, uh, I would think that Bernie would be welcoming Bloomberg. He's the perfect example of the thing he's railing against. But I want to get your take on that, Jim Pinkerton, co-chair of the Rate Coalition, contributor to the American Conservative and Breitbart. We'll be back with uh, more of Jim Pinkerton right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Jim Pinkerton, who's a contributor to the American Conservative and Breitbart. And Jim, we're talking about the uh, matchup on the dumb socialist side and uh, Bloomberg uh, rewriting the rules, literally, in terms of access to the debate stage, much to the chagrin of Bernie. But my question to you is, is it really to the chagrin of Bernie? Because there are diminishing marginal returns to money in politics, as you know. And isn't uh, Bloomberg a representative of all those things that Bernie has Bernie and so much of the Democrat Party has been railing against for the better part of a generation? Doesn't he set up as Bernie's perfect foil? History, as they say, is a feast 
of irony. And so Sanders was yelling and screaming about millionaires and billionaires 50 years ago when the Democrats were running, you know, relatively sort of middle class candidates like, you know, George McGovern and Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton. He thought the party was controlled by, you know, capitalist tycoons then. What does he think now? <laughs> he <laughs> I mean, it's nothing sort of yet. the ultimate, you know, yeah. be careful what you wish for kind of situation. And again, it, it, it could well be a, a final showdown between Sanders and, and Bloomberg, who are just sort of every Republican's stereotype of a Democrat unfair is that they're either communist or a billionaire. And now we have a communist and a billionaire as potential Democratic opponents in November. Everybody thought that nobody, you couldn't top the 2016 election for surprises and improbabilities. Well, maybe 20 will beat that yet. I hate to uh, counsel the left because, you know, I'm not uh, in their camp. So it's always it's like when a leftist tries to tell Republicans what to do. I, I know you don't have my best interests at heart, so I have to factor that in. But James Carville, so I'll just use his advice in counsel. Last week, he uh, basically said he's scared to death of what's going to happen in November. 18% of the population controls 52 Senate seats. We've got to be a majoritarian party. The urban core is not going to get it done for Democrats. What we need is power. Do you understand that's what this is about? He is clearly uh, railing against the extreme identitarian politics that has taken over the Democrat Party. I mean, Carville makes a lot of sense. You know, he worked for, most famously, you know, Bill Clinton, who it's hard to remember that back in 1992 and 1996, Bill Clinton, who was carrying states like Kentucky and West Virginia and Louisiana and Montana, I mean, he was carrying states that are now sort of seen as pretty much hardcore red. Uh, I mean, Carville has a quality to him, an insight into, you know, non-metropolitan America, suburbs and and the heartland and the hinterland. It's therefore interesting to see, you know, whether or not the Democrats uh, listen to him, and, and they probably won't because, you know, between... I mean, there, I mean, there is no, it's really hard to think of a Democrat. The closest one is, is Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, who sort of represents the kind of constituencies that, that Carville is alluding to. And, you know, I think she came in fourth or fifth, I can't quite remember, in, in Iowa. And possible, she could do better as possible, she could, she could win, although I don't think anybody thinks that's likely. And so, yeah, I mean, Carville sort of objectively speaking, is sort of explaining to Democrats, you know, if you're not careful, you're going to wind up with Trump again. Is he, is he also looking beyond 2020 in effect, whether he thinks so or not? And I, I point to this uh, recent piece by Joel Kotkin and uh, Wendell Cox in City Journal about red versus blue and what's happening with the demographic changes in this country as you and the population shifts as we're, uh, you know, in a census year. And, uh, of course, they they write about um, the story, particularly of millennials as well as uh, corporate operators, where they are moving and uh, they are moving away from New York and California, Illinois and New Jersey. And they're looking at midsize urban centers in redder states like Texas and Tennessee and South Carolina and Florida these days. And that's going to shift the balance of political power if that uh, if those uh, population changes continue in the direction in which they're headed at present over the next several cycles. Well, I, I read that article, too, and I think I seem to remember that my home state as well, Illinois, uh, you know, lost, I think, 800,000 people in the last decade, a full congressional district. So you're gonna, we're gonna, Illinois is going to get clipped again in terms of its House delegation come uh, uh, 2021. Uh, it is interesting to, to think about these demographic shifts. Of course, you've got to be, be wary 
that the new people coming in may well represent their old values. They may be moving to Texas or Florida you know, to, to avoid the state income tax and so on. But they, that doesn't necessarily mean they're conservatives. I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders was one of those transplants who, who moved from New York City to Vermont in the late 60s, early 70s, and took his, you know, Bolshevism with him and turned, and he and people like him turned Vermont from a hardcore Republican state to a hardcore Democratic state. So there's a, uh, but, you know, we, as Republicans, we have to be careful of what we wish for in terms of, you know, it would be a shame if, you know, uh, liberals all moved to Wyoming and made it Democratic. As we're uh, talking here tonight, uh, we're still really don't have a handle on what the Iowa caucus results were. I mean, you still have calls for a yet another recanvassing, even though allegedly 100 percent of the votes in and Bernie won the popular vote. But Mayor Pete won the delegates. And isn't that interesting from a party that wants to eliminate the Electoral College? But uh, but but how how damaging long term was the administration of that election for Democrats? In terms of the impact on Iowa, I think that the Democratic National Committee will probably meet somewhere in the next four years and say that we need a new plan. I think that Iowa kind of wrecked itself. I mean, it was, you know, it was a good run, if you will, from 1976 to 2020 or 2016. But, I mean, this challenge of you know, how, how to count votes, you know, if, if Iowa can't do it, then, you know, the, the critique that the state's not, quote, diverse enough, close quote, and so on, comes in. And I, and I think there's also just a, a larger challenge to everybody in terms of, you know, uh, can we make all this technology, all these apps, and so on, uh, can we make them work? Uh, and, it, you know, I think probably just about every American now depends on a, a smartphone and apps and so on uh, to do his or her uh, daily life. Uh, and in most cases, they work pretty well, but you know, elections are so sensitive that I sort of think that, uh, again, people of goodwill in both parties are going to have to say, look, uh, we, we just can't have this kind of Florida in 2000 or Iowa in 2020 type experience when people will just simply lose confidence uh, in elections. And that's, you know, a terrible thing for a, a democracy. Uh, as an Illinois native, Jim, you'll appreciate uh, that my initial reaction when this went down uh, a, a week ago was the Democrats can even turn Iowa into Cook County because that seems what they did. Uh, <laughs> he is Jim Pinkerton, co-chair of the Ray Coalition, contributor to the American Conservative and Breitbart. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I wanted to revisit the Vinman and Sunland terminations we were talking about earlier in the hour and the histrionics I was referencing coming from Trump critics. Here's a good example of it. And there's something more fundamental here. Anne Applebaum is a writer for The Atlantic. She's got a whole Twitter thread about her stop in Venezuela. This week I was in Venezuela, mostly offline. I observed from Caracas the finale of the impeachment trial, Romney's last stand, the firing of civil servants. All around me, people nodded wearily. 
Yes, they said, we've seen this before, comparing Chavez and now Maduro to Trump. What's happened in Venezuela to what's happening in America? Okay, Anne, she continued. She persisted, to borrow warnism. Of course, Venezuela is not the U.S. Trump is not a Bolivar- uh, Bolivarian socialist like Chavez. Of course, everything is different. But it is amazing how familiar Trump's behavior seemed to people who had lived through the decline of their own democracy. All elements were there. The strong man who made people laugh, who seemed authentic. Different, the appeal to fear and anger and the hatred of elites. Also, the fact that everyone saw what was happening and described it in real time. Brilliant academics, excellent journalists. They all knew that the dictatorship was expanding, that Chavez's personal power was growing, but they couldn't stop it. She goes on to say, you know, this is a Twitter feed, not an article. So, of course, the comparison is thin, but she's going to write more about it in due course. Well, I'll tell you what, Ann, I'll volunteer to be your research assistant. Because forgetting the astonishing effort to shoehorn in a comparison between the constitutional order in America under Trump to what began under Chavez and metastasized and extends under Maduro is, uh, well, I mean, it's just uh, fodder for the pseudo-intellectual. Orange man bad silliness, no examination of the record. But it's even more fundamental than that. Do you know how Venezuelan level tyranny is consummated? You have got to get buy-in. You have got to fold in significant percentages of those heroic academics and journalists that Ann Applebaum references in her Twitter thread. And uh, oh, by the way, the elites in all of the civic institutions in America, the vast majority, of course, are decidedly opposed to Trump. They're not folding in at all. They're part of the resistance, are they not? If you look at despotic regimes, they get members of the media and other elites to fold into the regime. All things run through the regime. This is why uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer was such a seminal figure in the 20th century, and particular in Nazi Germany, because he was a member of the Lutheran clergy who did not fold in with Hitler, where so many did. What was going on in Venezuela under Chavez? Perhaps uh, Anne Applebaum will tackle this when she gets around to writing more deeply about it. Really, she gets her gets into it here. In June of 2013, Hugo Chavez awarded Venezuela's National Journalism Prize for the Democratization of Communication. National Journalism Prize conferred posthumously on Hugo Chavez for promoting alternative media and the democratization of communication by Marxists in the Venezuelan media. How about the Marxists here? Salon.com op- op-ed from 2013. Hugo Chavez's economic miracle. And it wasn't only David Serrata in Salon.com writing about it. Other leftists were cheering Chavez, too, including President Obama when he... Uh, had a chummy meeting with a former thug that headed Venezuela before he died and gave way to a new thug. That's how it actually happened. This is Dan Prop. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, on Twitter, at Dan Proft Show, and at Dan Proft. And uh, is it happening again? Are the Democrat socialists being persuaded, defrauded, perhaps? I mean, that's my perspective, probably not theirs, by a uh, red diaper influenced candidate with a thin record, a memoir in his 30s, who serves as a mascot for the identity politics. 
this 2020 going to be 2008 Redux? Our friend John Gabriel writing in ricochet.com about uh, Mannequin Pete. Online surrogates have increasingly pointed out the mayor of Pawnee's flaws, especially his ability to talk for hours without saying a damn thing. Bland pablum is an asset when consulting for McKinsey or fluffing your LinkedIn bio, but it shouldn't inspire voters outside of an HOA pancake breakfast. And these are the kind of answers you get, the earnest nonsense you get from the human refrigerator magnet, Pete Buttigieg. So the biggest risk we could take at a time like this would be to go up against that fundamentally new challenge by trying to fall back on the familiar or trying to unite this country at a moment when uh, we need that kind of unification, when our nominee is dividing people with a politics that says if you don't go all the way to the edge, it doesn't count. A politics that says it's my way or the highway. Powerful. He is the um, author of other such profundities, including the shape of our democracy is the issue that affects every other issue. Yeah. Why don't you just go find a place where you can contemplate the the importance of that statement and so many others like it. And here's the bottom line, much like being the Manchurian candidate for the radical left was Obama's position in 2008. That's what he is in 2020, except the difference is he's actually taking the same positions as the socialists like Bernie that he's decrying. I mean, spin the wheel and pick a Warren and Bernie Sanders position that Mannequin Pete doesn't have. You can't find one. There is no distinction. There's no daylight between the three. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Christopher Bedford, senior editor at The Federalist, vice chairman of Young Americans for Freedom, board member at the National Journalism Center, and the author of the book, The Art of the Donald. Christopher, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, So, I mean, there is a lot of competition to be the biggest fraud in this field of Democrat socialists. And uh, I think uh, there's real momentum behind Mayor Pete earning that title, too. I was at one of his rallies yesterday. Uh, The crowd size was shocking. It took me about 15 minutes to park. The line wrapped all the way around the school in 25-degree weather. There was even a line for the media. But to your point exactly, when I got in, it was the most choreographed, perfect, nothing left to chance rally that I've seen so far this cycle in New Hampshire. There were practices for the cheers for about 45 minutes before the candidate (laughs) rolled in, whereas maybe some other campaigns do one. Uh, And at the end, well, you got a stump speech. So the people who waited a few hours got a classic stump speech. You could hear anything. But then he he gave them a surprise. They call it the fishbowl game. When someone comes up and the campaign randomly selects at random, questions from the audience for Pete to answer. He does three or four of those. They're, they're perfectly placed. They're all ones he can handle. Like and what makes you so great? Rally. That sort of thing. What makes you so great? Why are you so exactly. awesome? Yeah. The first question was about retirement uh, or it was about prescription drug prices. And he, and he started off with first, I'd like to thank our friends at the AARP who've been so careful on this issue. <laughs> all right, Pete. <laughs> But a lot of people. With respect to with respect to Bernie, uh, you might consider dyeing your hair purple and getting a septum piercing to sort of fit into that <laughs> crowd uh, before you head over there. But with but but um, I, I want to go one other candidate that hasn't been mentioned, uh, has not been mentioned much, and she's right next door, Elizabeth Warren. She really had an interesting uh, debate performance. Uh, she drew the ire of Meghan McCardle, and uh, rightly so. She said in the debate 
uh, about quiet, about quality child care, universal pre-K for every three-year-old and four-year-old in America. We can stop exploiting the people, largely black and brown women, who do this work and raise the wages of every child care worker and preschool teacher in America. Uh, Megan McArdle tweeted, did Elizabeth Warren just tell New Hampshire voters that most child care workers are black or brown? That is not true, and it's particularly stupid to erase white child care workers in a largely white state. But McArdle went on to say, this is everything that is wrong with Warren's campaign. It is nominally supposed to be about the middle class, and then it turns out over and over to be about the experiences and obsessions of highly educated urban professional women. To me, uh, that uh, little riff by McArdle nicely sums up why Elizabeth Warren is uh, trending down. She's she's trending terribly in this state, and like you said, it's amazing because I grew up in Massachusetts. It's just it's just thirty miles from here, and that's where she's the sitting senator. And yet she can't fill a crowd here. I will admit to you that I always thought it was shocking that anybody showed up at any point during this race to see Elizabeth Warren speaking because she is not a charismatic person, and she's never been very good at speaking to people one on one. She would talk about the way she cracks a beer whenever she's on camera to make it seem like she has beer. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Elizabeth Warren drinks beer. It's uh, she's, she's in in the the race stuff, but that's been injected over the last four years of maybe eight years of democratic primaries. All of these candidates are really struggling with the new language of the college left, the stuff that people used to make fun of in that old movie PCU. They're all trying to figure it out and they all sound hollow and foolish when they do. Liz Warren blaming a culture of oppression for why her campaign staff are quitting because they feel racially <laughs> targeted by white staffers. But this is your culture. You're in charge of your newsroom. Imagine if, imagine if I got called into my boss because people were quitting over racial incidents and I blamed a culture of imperialism. I'd be fired. That'd be insane. Um, the, the Bernie thing and Bernie versus Pete. Okay, this, is, this seems to be where this is going in New Hampshire. Maybe, maybe the whole thing. We'll see. I know Bloomberg's a wild card out there, but, uh, you know, Bernie is all like dour and angry and like a less funny version of Larry David. And Pete, <laughs> Pete gives, you know, sort of this patina of optimism. It's just sort of like, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm uh, happy ish and I'm positive ish and I'm saying nice things that are all sort of round in their character and uh, maybe is it just contrasting tone that is driving people to Pete as the alternative to Bernie, do you think? I think so. And exactly. To your point yesterday, while I couldn't make a Bernie rally, I did make it to Michael Moore's podcast on Bernie rallies and a packed room at an Irish bar. And it was very revolutionary, kind of angry, also somber. And that's Bernie's style as well. Pete Buttigieg is exactly the kind of candidate that is traditionally won in Democratic elections. The, the young, fresh-faced person who says anything that's right is always kind of scripted. You're not exactly sure what he stands for. He excites you, and people feel like they could paint their dreams and futures onto that person, whether it's Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, John F. Kennedy, Jimmy Carter. These are the kinds of people that maybe not sure what they stand for, but you feel like they are the future and they say the right things. Pete Buttigieg is by far the only regular old-fashioned, out-of-the-movies campaign rally that I've seen down here and might be the only person on the trail who has that 
very traditional, everyone get excited, we're not going to get sad uh, kind of attitude. <laughs> and that's got to be attractive. Yeah, we're not going to. No hey, one gets sad. <laughs> you, yeah, you wipe away those tears. You turn that frown upside down. This is Pete Buttigieg rally. Um, it, it, it really is so sophomoric, but but as you point out in this piece you wrote about him, as and as we were talking about at the top, uh, this is not a moderate. This is not somebody who's breaking with the sort of hard-left orthodoxy of the Democrat Socialist Party. No, not at all. On issues like abortion, he's to the hard left. He's, he, he meets the hard left on every single one of the issues that they have requested he meet them on. And he continuously gets this feeling as a moderate because he's got that young, fresh-faced optimism. People just paint what they want him to be onto him. Also, reporters are are desperately looking for a replacement for Joe Biden. It was amazing to see reporters just looking back and forth at each other in shock, liberal reporters, as Biden stumbled again and again at his rally yesterday afternoon. They need someone to replace him so they can beat the big, bad orange man. And they're hoping that it could be Pete Buttigieg. But outside of New York City, Washington, D.C., a couple of white enclaves, I think Pete Buttigieg is going to run into a wall of people who will not be down with his style. He is Christopher Bedford, senior editor at the Federalist, vice chairman of Young Americas for Freedom, board member at the National Journalism Center, and author of The Art of the Donald. Christopher, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Anything you want. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show and uh, maybe we have a uh, both a chastening moment and a teachable one with this gail king controversy have you been following this uh, sort of spiked over the weekend into the weekend with Oprah and others rallying the defense of Gail King. This is all over an interview that Gail King, CBS Morning, you know, fungible newsreader. She did an interview with Lisa Leslie, the former WNBA player who was close with Kobe Bryant. And she asked Lisa Leslie about Kobe's 2003 incident where he was accused of rape, charges dropped, out-of-court civil settlement, public apology for having an affair. Was that part of his legacy? And uh, the uh, floodgates opened. The mob that uh, wants only to lionize Kobe rallied to his to the defense of his legacy, I guess you would say, although not in a very constructive way, and uh, piled on Gail King. Give you an example. Here's a Snoop Dogg posts on Instagram at, directed at Gail King. Gail King, out of pocket for that shit. Way out of pocket. What do you gain that means from wrong. that? I swear to God, we the worst. We the fucking worst. We expect more from you, Gail. Who's the Don't weed? you hang out with Oprah? Why are y'all attacking us? We your people. You ain't coming after fucking Harvey Weinstein asking them dumb ass questions. I get sick of y'all. I want to call you one. Is it okay if I call her one? Funky dog head. How dare you try to tarnish my motherfucking homeboy's reputation, punk motherfucker. Respect the family and back off. Bitch, before we come get you. Okay, and that drew a response from <laughs> no less than Susan Rice. Oh my gosh, Susan Rice. 
she was a national security advisor for the president of the United States once upon a time. I mean, I know she was there just to be a flack and tell us lies about Benghazi, but good grief. This is despicable. She fired back at uh, Snoop Dogg. Gail King is one of the most principled, fair, and tough journalists alive. Snoop, back the blank off. You come for Gail King. You come against an army. You will lose, and it won't be pretty. <laughs> the Susan Rice uh, Snoop Dogg throwdown. East Coast, West Coast. I don't know if which coast Susan Rice is on, actually. But, I mean, it's just remarkable. And Oprah, before we even play the underlying interview, you just have to hear the reactions. Oprah on the Today Show last week uh, getting emotional because of all the front, all the uh, flack her BFF is taking. She is not doing well. May I say she is not? She is not doing well because she has now death threats and has oh. to now travel with security. And um, she's feeling very much attacked. You know, Bill Cosby is is texting from is tweeting tweeting from jail. Uh, She's not she's not doing well and feels that she was put in a really terrible position because that interview had already ran. Mm -hmm. It was over. And in the context of the interview, everyone seemed fine, including Lisa Leslie. I'm glad that, uh, by the way, Bill Cosby doesn't run afoul of the Twitter guidelines, but James O'Keefe does. <laughs> Bill Cosby tweeting about uh, a Kobe interview from prison. There's something wrong with that, but I digress. So Oprah's all upset about it. Gail was upset about it, too. She she understands why people are upset. She's just as upset as the people who are upset at her. Because she didn't know that her questions to Lisa Leslie would be taken out of context. So she took to Twitter, did Gail King, to defend herself. I've been up reading the comments about the interview I did with Lisa Leslie about Kobe Bryant. And I know that if I had only seen the clip that you saw, I'd be extremely angry with me, too. I am mortified. I'm embarrassed. And I am very angry. Uh, Unbeknownst to me, my network put up a clip from a very wide-ranging interview, um, totally taken out of context. And when you see it that way, it's very jarring. It's jarring to me. I didn't even know anything about it. I started getting calls. What the hell are you doing? Why did you say this? What is happening? I did not know what people are talking about. So I've been told, or I've been advised to say nothing. Just let it go. People will drag you. People will troll you. It'll be over in a couple of days. But that's not good enough for me because I really want people to understand what happened here and and how I'm feeling about it. Uh, You feel your feelings, Gail. Here's the thing. We'll finally get to the actual portion of the interview in question. I watched the whole thing. And it's positively pedestrian. There's nothing to whip yourself into a frenzy about. As you'll hear, this is the pertinent portion of that Gail King, Lisa Leslie interview. It's been said that his legacy is complicated because of a sexual assault charge, which was dismissed in 2003, 2004. Is it complicated for you as a woman, as a WNBA player? It's not complicated for me at all. Even if there's a few times that we've been at a club at the same time, Kobe's not the kind of guy, never been like, you know, Lisa, go get that girl or tell her or send her this. I have other NBA friends that are like that. Really? Who are they? He he was never like that. I just never see, have ever seen him being the kind of person that would be, do something to violate a woman or be aggressive in that way. That's just not the person that I know. But Lisa, you wouldn't see it though. As his friend, you wouldn't see it. And that's possible. Mm -hmm. I just... It's just, I just don't, I just don't believe that. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying things didn't happen. Mm -hmm. I just don't believe 
that things didn't happen with force. Is it even a fair question to talk about it, considering he's no longer with us and that it was resolved? Or is it really part of his history? I think that the media should be more respectful um, at this time. It's like if you had questions about it, you've had many years to ask him that. I don't think it's something that we should keep hanging over his legacy. I mean, he went to it went to trial. Well, it's, there's a couple of points here. One, um, you know, if Gail King was uh, actually listening to her subject, trying to get some value for her viewers out of it, she may have pressed not the Kobe issue, but the you know players like that. Are there NBA players? Well, in this Me Too era, we're supposed to see something, say something. Would you like to develop that a little bit more? Or would you like to name some names or tell us what kind of behavior you have witnessed? Shouldn't that be addressed? Have a larger conversation about that. Secondly, uh, something Lisa Leslie said there at the end is a fairly is a, a very good point. This happened in 2003. Of course, it was a huge story then, and uh, we're in 2020. So why are we sawing sawdust? You know what happened. Uh, all the questions have been asked and answered. Uh, and point of fact, people don't know the details. Even Lisa Leslie, close a close friend of Kobe Bryant, it didn't go to trial. The charges were dropped. The charges were dropped against Kobe, out-of-court civil settlement, public apology for the affair, and that was 17 years ago. But Gail did ask, is it even fair to ask this question? So, I mean, Gail King is technically right. I guess my only takeaway from this uh, whole imbroglio, if we could just, you know, separate the salacious nonsense of the uh, Snoop Dogg Instagram post and uh, Susan Rice trash-talking rejoinder on Twitter. So now Oprah and Gail... When the media mob piles on someone you don't like, when they rush to judgment, are you going to join in? Are you going to remember this moment and how you were treated unfairly, I will concede, and show some restraint? Apply one of Jim Lehrer's rules that I'm going to treat the subject of my report or that's otherwise being reported on like I would want to be treated if I was that subject. Pretty simple sort of the spin on the golden rule for the purposes of media coverage. Maybe this will be a chastening moment and a teachable moment. Maybe. This is Dan Prop. Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, updating the latest as to what we know about the coronavirus and what's being done to combat it. There was uh, uh, some Chinese representation on the Sunday talkies. Chinese ambassador to the United States did an interview with uh, Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation. And she pressed him on whether or not uh, there is something to the theory about the virus having been leaked or sourced to this uh, biological warfare lab in Wuhan. 
And this is how that exchange went. Senator Tom Cotton, who sits on the Senate Intelligence and Armed Services Committee, suggested that the virus may have come from China's biological warfare program. That's an extraordinary charge. How do you respond to that? I think it's true that a lot is still unknown. And our scientists, Chinese scientists, American scientists, scientists of other countries are doing their best to learn more about the virus. But it's very harmful, it's very dangerous to stir up suspicion, rumors, and spread them among the people. For one thing, this will create panic. Another thing is that it will fend up racial discrimination, xenophobia, all these things that will really harm our joint efforts to combat the virus. Of course, there are all kinds of speculations and rumors. There are people who are saying that these viruses are coming from some military lab, not of China, maybe in the United States. How can we believe all these crazy things? You think it's crazy? Where did the virus Absolutely come from? Absolutely crazy. Where did the virus come from? We still don't know yet. It's probably, according to some initial outcome of the research, probably coming from some animals. But we have to, to discover more about it. Um, well, um, I guess crazy is a denial, but it took him a while to get to a denial. There is this a competing story that perhaps the ambassador was referencing about the pangolin, uh, which is this uh, scaly mammal uh, in China that's uh, considered a delicacy in some Asian countries. Maybe that was the source of the virus in those uh, uh, those uh, animal markets that were described in places like Wuhan. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Julie Sunderland. She's a former director of the Gates Foundation Strategic Investment Fund and is a co-founder and managing director of Biomatics Capital Partners. She has written on the topic of pandemics. Julie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. Thank how, you. How did you receive the uh, Chinese ambassador's uh, response to Margaret Brennan's question? You know, uh, I'm a, I, I work in a scientific field, and so my focus is always on uh, understanding what is going on and really delving into the science of uh, what is going on from uh, from a pandemic point of view. Uh, so, you know, less thinking about what you know what the ambassador said, and more thinking about how we, as a society, um, as you know, great scientists that we have in the U.S. can really monitor and respond to the risks of uh, these types of pathogens. Well, so, you with, know, with res- it, it, yeah, with respect to yeah. that, then that's fair enough. With respect to that, uh, how difficult is it to monitor and plan a response if you? And I'm not saying the Chinese are not cooperating, but there's some suggestion they're not or not being fully forthright. If they're not telling you sort of the extent of the spread, the the extent of the problem on the ground is it is are you able to work around a government like the Chinese government and get to the truth? Yeah, and so you know when we think about uh, pandemic uh, monitoring and control, again from very much a scientific and regulatory point of view, um, you know this you know every every few years we have a reaction and an overreaction to uh, the risk of epidemics and pandemics. And we actually have great tools from a scientific and regulatory point of view to be able to monitor pathogens, to be able to combat pathogens. The challenge that we have from a global perspective is we just are not using those tools. You know, so whether that, that pathogen emerges in China or whether that pathogen emerges in 
uh, Africa, whether that pathogen emerges in the U.S., uh, what we actually need is coordinated, uh, technical, highly skilled response. We in the U.S. within the CDC and other agencies have some of the best talent to be able to manage those responses, but we aren't being able to use it either proactively or constructively in part because of national boundaries, but also because we just don't have the support right now that we should have in order to be able to really fight these pathogens. Uh, I want to uh, pick up on this. You wrote about this three-pronged approach that we should be taking when dealing with the coronavirus, and I want to pick up on, on, on that when we return with Julie Sunderland, former director of the Gates Foundation Strategic Investment Fund, co-founder managing director of Biomatics Capital Partners. We'll be back with more of Ms. Sunderland right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Julie Sunderland on The Dan Prof Show talking about the coronavirus and the things we could be doing that perhaps we're not, we being America. Julie, in, in your piece at uh, Project Syndicate, you write about this three-pronged approach, this sort of this framework for addressing the coronavirus and, and other viruses, as you were describing before the break. Give us uh, sort of the top line on the three prongs we should be pursuing. Yeah, so first I want to put context, which is when we think about fighting um, human wars, uh, we're incredibly well prepared. We have a military that invests in science and technology. We have a that in order to, to be effectively prepared, uh, we have a ton of respect for our military, uh, and we are constantly preparing for military threats. And so I use that analogy when thinking about how we should also respond to threats from pathogens. And so really three different uh, things that we should be thinking about, which is very similar to how we think about our military response. The first is to invest in uh, science and technology. We've got some of the best science and technology to fight pathogens in the U.S., uh, and we should be investing much more heavily in that, similarly to the way that we invest in military technology. You know, when we think about our military, we know that our generals and our soldiers and our government is incredibly well prepared. They're constantly thinking about strategic preparedness for any sort of military threat. Similarly, we should have institutions within the public service that are preparing for threats from pathogens. Um, you know, the, the recent administration actually shut down the, the NSC group that was responsible for monitoring and responding to pandemic threats. A first step would be for us to reestablish essentially, a, you know, a pandemic czar or a secretary of uh, biological defense in order to defend ourselves from, from pathogenic threats. And then the third issue, which we touched on briefly before, is that these are global threats. They're not something where we can defend against national borders. And therefore, even in this environment of America first, we should be responding via global activities such as you know, developing a special forces of health workers to go into these epidemic sites, building up global epidemic insurance such that we have the resources we need for countries to go in and fight 
uh, against pathogenic uh, threats and at a minimum uh, supporting some of the organizations that uh, exist right now, such as CEPI, which is a coalition for epidemic preparedness uh, by providing additional resources to them. So a three-pronged approach that, that really mimics the way that we prepare for military threats. And, and, and consistent with that metaphor, um, the, scrambling the private sector too, we've seen reports about the big drug companies in this country looking at their inventory of uh, medicines uh, uh, to, to figure out if, if some combination of their drugs may treat the coronavirus. And there's, there was a report, I, th- I believe, out of Thailand last week that suggested that a drug that's normally used to treat HIV may be showing some promising results with respect to to treating coronavirus infection as well. And I, I just wonder about the, the big pharma as a piece of this, both in terms and in conjunction with CDC, both in terms of providing um, and developing uh, antidotes as quickly as possible, as well as diagnostic tests that can be uh, ubiquitously distributed so healthcare providers don't have to send all their samples into the CDC and wait for them to come back and so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. A, a lot of my colleagues within, whether it's biotech companies or big pharma, are very quickly and generously responding to the threat of coronavirus and have turned their attention immediately to uh, developing uh, therapeutics and, and rapid diagnostics. The thing that drives me a little bit crazy is that they're only doing it now. You know, if I think about, uh, again, getting back to that military analogy, we wouldn't try to build a stealth bomber the day after we hear about a military threat. And what I see happening again and again with these pathogenic threats, whether it's Ebola, whether it's Zika, whether it's SARS, and now coronavirus, the new coronavirus, every single time it's like we're surprised that we have this pathogenic threat. And then we start building the infrastructure and building the treatment and building the diagnostics. It takes time. But but, uh, but, but but as a layman, my, my reaction, that would be, well, isn't it difficult to predict the mutations that uh, different viruses are going to take so and to prepare for them accordingly, or is it not? It is, but we could do a lot more in terms of building the infrastructure. So, for example, uh, there's a new technology called RNA vaccines, where we actually have the ability to turn our cells essentially into vaccine factories. And so what you can do is you can invest in that as a platform technology. So you can say, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to really build that capability to very quickly, essentially, once you understand what the the pathogen, the mutational profile of the pathogen is, you can very quickly develop and scale up those types of, of new technologies. And so what, what we need to be doing is instead of every time trying to, uh, you know, scramble around and build a vaccine or build a diagnostic, that we actually have those platform technologies ready. And once we understand that mutational profile, we can very quickly scale up those treatments. Uh, You write in your piece, our most powerful weapon against uh, the threat of these viruses is intelligence. But but I want to panic like everybody else and wear latex gloves and run around with a mask on, you know, and, and predict the end of time because uh, there's a study out of Germany that via coronavirus uh, infections stay on surfaces for up to nine days and so on and so forth. Can you give us some perspective on just how, how lethal this threat is of, of coronavirus, the way we should be thinking about it so we're not running around with our hair on fire? Well, as I wrote in my piece, we should be afraid, right? We should, you know, infectious diseases have been killing human beings from the beginning of time. And the pathogens are extraordinarily powerful in their evolutionary capabilities because there are so many of them and they mutate so rapidly. 
So being fearful is actually a valid response to infectious disease. What's not valid is that sort of hysteria, meaning we should know exactly what we need to do to respond. You know, the coronavirus, I'm not an expert, so I can't tell you how lethal the coronavirus is, but from what I've seen, it looks to me like not dissimilar from a really bad flu. Right. And so are you going to die from coronavirus? I really don't think so. Could be wrong, so don't take me, I, again, not an expert. I think the reality is every single time one of these, these pathogens emerges, we have this overreaction of fear because we are not prepared for it. We're not prepared ourselves. We don't know how to react to it. We don't have the experts in a coordinated fashion uh, helping us understand how to fight these pathogens. She is Julie Sunderland, former director of the Gates Foundation's Strategic Investment Fund, co-founder and managing director of Biomatics Capital Partners. Julie, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. Pleasure. Take care. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The uh, Oscars didn't provide the only moments or moments in entertainment over the weekend that are instructive about our culture at present. On Friday, RuPaul you know, the drag queen, was on uh, Jimmy Fallon's show. Uh, she was, uh, he was on, excuse me, to uh, celebrate being the first uh, drag queen on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine. And uh, Jimmy Kimmel uh, described RuPaul in a way that he took offense to initially play acting. But Fallon didn't know he was play acting initially. And if you, you know, it's difficult to really confer just uh, via audio but if you listen to it, the silence, and go check it out on video uh, at Dan Proft, at Dan Proft Show. The expression on his face, his career flashing before his eyes, depending on how RuPaul genuinely was going to react to what he said, is so telling about the totalitarian nature of the identitarian culture in which we live. This was gigantic. This is the first time a drag queen has ever been put on the uh, cover A drag queen?! A drag queen. I am the queen of drag. Oh, oh now we can all laugh. Okay, it's okay to laugh long enough. Everybody breathe. Everybody breathe. I'm embarrassed. I'm sorry. I'm embarrassed. He doesn't even know what he's apologizing for. Oh, my God. Did you drive here? He is the driver. RuPaul says it's okay to laugh. Okay, everybody, relax. I must have lost $20 million a year. Oh, my. Oh. That's how much power RuPaul has to take offense or not to Jimmy Fallon calling him what he is when he plays dress up. Remarkable. And uh, it goes all the way back to Starbucks. Of course, Starbucks, uh, you know, leading the Western Hemisphere in racial tolerance. Howard Schultz's genius race together campaign. Speaking of which, how did uh, Howard's uh, presidential campaign work out? He had some big ideas. Mm hmm. Starbucks UK released an ad campaign to promote the acceptance of sex change in young teens. The ad shows a young trans person getting used to their chosen name while getting a coffee 
with the name that she prefers called out in the store, you know, for the purposes of normalization. English trans team with a buzz cut and nose ring named Gemma who wants to use her new name of James. Uh, the coffee chain Starbucks says of the campaign, taking a customer's name, writing on a cup and calling it out is a symbol of our warm welcome. Celebrates the signature act and the significance it can have for some transgender, gender diverse people as they use their new name in public. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, back on this planet, in some states in America, you have a move to ban gender transition procedures, surgical procedures in children under the age of 16. South Dakota passed a law. Similar legislation is being considered in Colorado, Oklahoma, Missouri, surprisingly, Illinois, Kentucky, West Virginia, South Carolina, and Florida uh, to protect children from medical abuse, you know, at the hands of those that want to throw all in with the cultural zeitgeist being promoted by Starbucks and Hollywood and Jimmy Fallon, the identitarian culture, totalitarian. This is the Dan Prophet. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. They got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat. Yeah, the campus beat. Yeah. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Interesting op-ed in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend from Doug Hodge. You may never have heard that name until this weekend. Doug Hodge is the former CEO of PIMCO, big hedge fund. He has been sentenced to nine months in prison for participating in the Varsity Blues scandal, you know, cooking up academic and particularly athletic records for high school students, bribing college officials in order to get their kids into the right school. Doug Hodge did that. His op-ed, I wish I never met Rick Singer. Rick Singer was the consultant that all these families, you know, Lori Laughlin from Full House and William H. Macy and his wife, Lissy Huffman, and Doug Hodge and many other well-to-do families, Rick Singers, who they hire to help get their kids into the colleges of their choice. He uh, writes about the call he got about a year ago, March 12th of 2019, the FBI telling him he was going to be charged with two counts of fraud and that he needed to report to the next, the nearest FBI office as soon as possible. He thought it was a prank initially, and it wasn't. Yes, I had engaged Rick Singer to help with the college admissions process for my children. I was certain that I had not committed any crime, but I was wrong. This is what Singer proposed, as Hodge recounts. He would create a brand for my child to help separate our application from the legions of others. Second, he touted his many connections at top colleges. Nothing he said suggested he would rely on deception and illicit payments to secure my child's acceptance. Well, nothing initially, but certainly as the process proceeded, he did. <laughs> he did. And Hodge acknowledges that of sorts. He, knew, uh, he said he knew that some athletic coaches were willing to help with admissions in return for financial contributions. He also knew parents were willing to contribute far more than the coaches would need, allowing them to pocket the difference. But I also knew that Singer was providing my child, my children, with a false athletic brand. I believe that Mr. Singer was directing my payments to underfunded athletic programs, but I have now learned that a chunk of my payments ended up in Mr. Singer's personal bank account. 
Mr. Singer presented himself as a do-gooder, but it was all a lie. There was no good at the heart of his mission, only greed. Well, I mean, with all due respect, Mr. Hodge, what was at the heart of your mission? What was at the heart of your mission for your kid, kids? Greed. I want them to go to these schools that confer this status or bust because I went to good schools, even though your kids are not going to have to worry about uh, college loan debt and your kids could go to any school in the nation and be living testament to it's not where you go to school, it's how you go to school, couldn't they? And uh, whether you want to provide it or not, they always have a backstop with dad, particularly, clearly, a dad that is willing to sink to the depths that Mr. Hodge uh, sank to in order to provide a glide path for their college entrance. Yeah. I bought into what I thought was a win-win-win, a win for the universities, for my children, and for other people's children. Well, how would that be for other other people's children because you were funding these quote-unquote underfunded athletic programs? Well, it certainly wasn't a win for other people's children who were being displaced by your underwriting, right? Being displaced not by merit, but by peddling effectively political influence, clout. Of course, it was too good to be true. On the outside, I wanted to believe. On the inside, I knew better. Hodge goes on to say he was raised with a strong moral compass. I've tried hard to live an ethical life. Looking back, there wasn't one moment when I decided to abandon my principles. Rather, it was a series of small steps. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose that is normally how it goes. You sell your soul a little bit at a time. You know, it's in in, uh, aviation. You talk about the decision chain, right? It's usually not one bad decision, but a series of bad decisions that put you in the ground. You uh, have a problem and you exacerbate it and then exacerbate it some more and exacerbate it some more. But he does uh, take responsibility. He writes, I and I alone am responsible for this. I deeply regret my conduct and I'm sorry for the shame I brought upon myself, my wife, and my children who did nothing to deserve the consequences they have suffered as a result of my actions. He concludes by saying, I resolve never again to let aspiration and emotion overcome my moral grounding. Well, boy, that's a whole topic in and of itself, isn't it? Uh, Not so much aspiration. I think that's a charitable euphemism for greed. Greed in terms of the status you wanted for your children. That's a form of greed. Avarice. But the uh, never allowing emotion to override my moral conviction. Huh. Boy, we could use a lot more of that. Like he has a lot more of that on college campuses in the business world in which uh, Doug Hodge operates, including among so many of his hedge fund for, uh, hedge fund friends and financial titans. Couldn't we? You know, the people, the 40 billionaires, as I talked about on Friday, who are backing Pete Buttigieg, 40 of the 600 billionaires in the country behind Pete Buttigieg, who is nothing but emotion. Sophistry sentimentality and that is the great cultural affliction up and down the socioeconomic ladder and across all of our cultural and civic institutions the sentimental barbarism that uh, Doug Hodge is referencing though he may not be referencing it may not know he's referencing it and this brings me to something else too thinking about emotion another uh, great post by our friend Mark Perry over at Carpe Diem blog uh, American Enterprise Institute, Mark Perry, economics prof at University of Michigan. 
the STEM jihad, right? Women are being discriminated against women. There are environmental and bias factors that are preventing women from representing their numbers in STEM, even as, as we've talked about in this show before, there's no problem, according to the cultural panjan drums, there's no problem with the fact that for every 100 girls who earn an associate's degree, 63 men do. For every 100 girls enrolled in graduate school, 73 men are. For every 100 girls who earn a BA, 74 men do. For every 100 girls who earn a master's degree, 74 men do. For every 100 girls enrolled in U.S. colleges, 77 men are. For every 100 girls in the top 10% of their high school class, 79% of men are. For every 100 girls who take the SAT test, 89 men do. No problem with that disparity. There's no cry of equity with respect to that. But on these test results, sure, you'll get it. As Mark Perry writes, you'll get it from groups like the American Association of University Women, which is just another left-wing feminist organization lording over college campuses. 2019 AP test results by subject and gender. The hard sciences, STEM, uh, average male test scores, significantly better than average female test scores. So these are people, men and women, in AP courses, so the best students with the highest aptitudes, and consistently physics, microeconomics, macroeconomics, chemistry, Statistics, biology, environmental sciences, music theory, calculus, computer science, uh, psychology, languages, men, average score better than women's average score. So another possible explanation for this disparity, if we're not going to be emotional, if we're not going to be sentimentalists, we're going to think through this rationally is that maybe boys have a greater interest than their female counterparts in STEM and economics and demonstrate, and that's in part why they demonstrate a higher level of aptitude in STEM and economics. Mark Perry writes, uh, assuming that academic interest and academic performance in high school AP STEM and econ classes and tests are good predictors of both selecting STEM and economics as college majors and successfully completing bachelor's degrees in those fields, Couldn't the significant gender AP performance gap favor high school boys be one explanation for the quote-unquote shortage of of women in STEM and economic degrees as well as careers in those fields? Well, sure it could. Does that mean no women can compete with? No, of course not. Of course not. It's saying that there is not this national crisis that the American Association of University Women and all sorts of other politicized flacks masquerading as academics say there is unless they'd like to address the disparities going in the other direction. But of course they don't. I'm Dan Paul.
good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. It was such a happy weekend in Bloomington, Indiana, with the uh, general's return after a 20-year absence. 20 years after he was uh, fired as the basketball coach, Bobby Knight returns to Assembly Hall to uh, the uh, happiness of Indiana basketball fans, receives a, a returning hero's welcome. It was nice to see moments where he embraced Isaiah Thomas and other Indiana greats that were there. This, the, the rift between he and Indiana was less about anger and more about hurt. That he was hurt from being let go and he wasn't over it. And, uh, and it's, it's beautiful to see that, that he's back and that his players are back with him. Seeing a coach with his team is something pretty special. Yeah, it was special. It was a special weekend, and uh, I'm a huge Bobby Knight fan. It was against Purdue, so you also had Gene Cady in the stand, Gene Cady, another great. So see great coaches and great players come together. If you're a college basketball fan, you had to be moved by that moment. But um, that's some of the good going on on the campus of Indiana University. Some of the less good, the story that comes to us from Campus Reform News, campusreform.org, Indiana University defends then cancels Sex Fest featuring BDSM demos, kink, and sex toys. Yes, they uh, defended before canceling their three day annual or four, their three day and fourth annual Sex Fest, including booths showcasing various sex toys, flogging mechanisms, complete with diagrams showing students how to use them, uh, as well as a student, and this is picture by Campus Reform, being flogged in uh, public as, I guess, a way to demonstrate some BDSM business. Now, I mean, I don't have much standing here as a Northwestern grad. We had an entire class on sex toys, not when I took, but uh, since I graduated. Every time Northwestern University is in the news, the value of my degree goes down. So I'm not sitting in judgment here, but uh, the kink workshop, as it was called, and I remember seeing kink workshop open for uh, men at work, at uh, the Rosemont Horizon in, like, 94. They were very good. Kink Workshop uh, and educational booths demonstrating the safe use of different sex toys. Students were also invited to a workshop on contract development and boundaries while uh, perusing all of the different sex toys and categories of usage that were presented by the university's health center. Wild and Willie Times in the heartland there in Bloomington, Indiana. For more on this topic... We're pleased to be joined by Matt Amon, uh, Amon, who is a member of the student government at Indiana University. Matt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um, yeah, what's with this uh, sex fest uh, bonanza do- down there in uh, in Hoosier land? Uh, Jimmy Chitwood would not approve. Well, uh, you know, I got a friend at the University of Illinois who reports for campus reform, and he sent me the Facebook link to the group and or to the event, and I was there's no way this is actually going on. <laughs> so I had to go down and check it out for myself with a friend. Um, and when I got there, I wasn't really planning on recording, but when I saw live demonstrations going on, it just it made me so upset to see that this was going on in, in the bottom of a dorm um, building. And uh, when I got there, I didn't even get the worst, worst footage. There was a bigger older woman who was bent over on a chair getting whipped by an actual whip. Um, 
unfortunately I didn't get footage of that, but I think that was probably the worst thing going on there. Um, and they also had like sharp utensils laid out over tables and eventually they just surrounded us and, and held up shirts so we couldn't get any more footage. Um, but I think that video is probably some of the best footage I could have got. So well, it's, um, it's I'm happy. Yeah, it's interesting that they would uh, want to prevent you from getting footage because, of course, they're doing this uh, fest as a way to celebrate all this. this there's nothing to be ashamed exactly. of here, right? This is all <laughs> this is all happiness and sunlight and goodness. Well, you know, that's what I said. I said, are you guys ashamed of this? <laughs> and they're like, no. Like, why are you covering it? But uh, I am happy to announce we did end up getting the last day of the event canceled um, by the university. So hopefully next year they'll think a little bit more wisely about how they uh, organize Sex Fest. Well, and also, I mean, the uh, it's interesting that you didn't otherwise know about it other than, you know, you got this message from a friend of yours at uh, U of I and, and then you looked into it. So was this much publicized on campus? Is this something that's particularly popular or it's just something that's sort of beyond the pale that's funded by an insular group of uh, special interests, special interests, maybe not even among the student body, but among the administrative body? Well, that's a really good question because the university responded by saying it was one of their most requested events. Yet when we were there, there's about 10 to 15 people there the entire time. And um, there was really no mention of it in any classes, no one talking about it on campus, no emails about it. So I have a really hard time believing that that's one of their most requested events. Um, it, it just it reeks of a of an overpaid PR person with a pension. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> trying to save face for the university. Yeah, I, I mean, I you know most people I, I suspect. Uh even on a college campus, prefer their plogging, their flogging behind closed doors. I mean, but that, 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 that's me. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I don't know what the kids are up to these days. What, what is, what is it like at IU? I mean, because we hear so many horror stories. Well, like this one about what's going on on college campuses, sometimes driven by the students, sometimes driven by the faculty and administrators. Uh, what's your uh, general experience at IU so far when it comes to sort of uh, the political culture and the culture generally on campus? Um, I don't think the activism that goes on here is is too prevalent or or violent on either side, but you do see just crazy things that make your head shake, like Antifa meetings or this or that. But they've been rather ineffective at organizing, um, and I think one socialist group just disbanded. But we will definitely have to see how it shakes up uh, coming closer to 2020. And I really hope that I uh, get to witness Donald Trump get reelected on a college campus. Now, are you? Uh, uh, yeah. Now, are are you active on in campus politics with college Republicans or anything like that? Uh, I was working with Turning Point USA, mm-hmm. um, but now that I'm in student government and some some changes, I'm I'm starting to work with the Leadership Institute. If you're familiar with them, sure. Um, we're hoping to start a new group here and, and uh, get some more activism and bring some speakers and hopefully shake things up on the conservative side. And, uh, and, because, is, and is the campus uh, fairly amenable to hearing a diversity of viewpoints on when it comes to political issues or social issues? So I, I, I'm uh, taking mostly business classes, so most business professors are fine. But when it comes to the university, it's really interesting because I think about two years before me, there was supposed to be a Ben Shapiro event, and they told them they'd have to get their own chairs, um, pay for all of their own security. So they did everything they could to allow him to come but make it 
so like such a high bar that he wasn't realistically able to come. Um, they had to cancel the speaker. So that's another thing for me. It's like, why are they going out funding this and promoting this when when's the last time they funded or promoted a pro-life event or an alternative to abortion event? It's a complete bias and agenda to, I think, just yeah. morally bankrupt my you generation. You may ask him if uh, that was uh, student activities fees uh, that paid for all the sex toys or if they had to at least pay for their own <laughs> sex toys and uh, stocks. And well, that's the, I want to FOIA that. Yeah, I want to get, get some uh, documents on that and see exactly where that money came from because we had conflicting statements from the university on where the money came from. He is Matt Amon. He's a Congress member for the student government at Indiana University and uh, uh, providing a little bit of hope for our future in terms of what's happening on college campuses. Matt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Dan. Have a great day. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And just uh, flying off of our interview with a young man from Indiana University about uh, Sex Toy Fest Week there at Bloomington, uh, American University. Campus reform went on the campus of American University in advance of yesterday night's Oscars and asked uh, the students on campus, uh, you know, to make sense of the diversity or lack of diversity of the Academy Award nominees and those who are winning Academy Awards these days. Do do we have a real problem on our hands in Hollywood with uh, lack of representation well, you probably won't see, be surprised to hear from to hear what uh, these kids on the campus of American University had to say inside the Beltway, with a couple of exceptions, a couple people with synapses misfiring, doing some white mansplaining, actually. I think there should have been more diverse thing. I mean, this has been a problem with the Oscars for, what, like, ever now? Yeah, I definitely think there's a problem. I feel like we, um, as a Latina woman, I definitely want to see more representation in the entertainment um, I do think it's a problem because it's not reflective of our actual population. Racial representation is pretty pathetic right now. Um, I would agree that that is a problem, mainly just because it's been predominantly white for such a long time and we need more representation. We have seen that there's a lot of issues with representation. We all need to show ourselves a little bit more and create more diversity and inclusion. I don't think it reflects society well, and I feel like there's a lot more than just white men doing important things. I don't even know who was nominated because I can't think of any white men who really stand out, but... If you're qualified to to be nominated for award, if if you've made a significant contribution to the arts or whatever then you should be nominated. I think we shouldn't really necessarily take into consideration too much the race or gender of specific nominees. To a certain extent, I think it is, but I, I think the bigger, the bigger aspect should be if it's on merit. Qualifications and the quality of the work should be the priority as opposed to you know, your level of melanin or chromosomes or whatever. So if the, if the white actors and if the male actors deserve the Oscar nominations, then they should be receiving them. But the like, same goes for any other actor of color too yeah like the south koreans uh for parasite which uh, i said that uh, would be my vote for best picture and of course it was best picture that's the sort of influence i have on the academy but uh you know here's the thing listening to those kids except for the last two talking about merit uh it, it's just this is this is what happens 
when your mind is rotted by can't. There, there is no mind left. And uh, I, th- I blame sort of Obama, uh, Obama 2.0, that would be Manic and Pete, Elizabeth Warren, all these politicians that speak in the lexicon of can't. There, uh, to borrow from Anthony Esselin, the great uh, conservative Catholic thinker, uh, there is no mind there anymore, only a predictable drone of empty words where a mind used to be. And uh, you see it up and down. Oh, by the way, no, no uh, white men to, uh, that are particularly remarkable or memorable, said the one young lady. Well, uh, one of the white men who won, Joaquin Phoenix, this is either a put-on or you want to talk about a, a mind <laughs> that is completely addled by Hollywood can't. We feel entitled to artificially inseminate a cow, and when she gives birth, we steal her baby. Even though her cries of anguish are unmistakable. And then we take her milk that's intended for her calf and we put it in our coffee and our cereal. Uh, That's going to be the next uh, craze on college campuses. Black coffee equity Uh, coming out against uh, artificial insemination of cows. Who's with me, right, Rosie O'Donnell? Against artificial insemination of cows? Uh, Just (laughs) I mean, again, I was waiting for Baba Booey from Joaquin Phoenix. So I can't tell if it's one of his put-ons or this is, uh, and he's parroting the virtue signaling blather of the Hollywood uh, left and the left more generally, or this is sort of the next frontier railing against speciesism, the idea that we should be um, more exceptional, view ourselves as more exceptional than amphibians is something he decried yesterday while also decrying cream in your coffee. Just sort of remarkable. But this is the social justice generation going back to American U, uh, American University's campus. These are our social justice generations coming up. Be afraid. Be very afraid. We're uh, like the social justice generations, and we are starting to become really vocal and aware of all of these issues. Yeah, and then you're turning into empty-headed, sentimental barbarians making movies in Hollywood or standing on debate stages in New Hampshire. This is the Dan Prop Show. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, and just to continue on a bit more with the Oscars, but don't worry, there'll be a public policy, cultural intersection here shortly. There were some fun moments, though. You know, I thought... Ray Romano dropping an F-bomb as he's sort of offering a uh, impersonation of Joe Pesci on the set of Kill the Irishman was pretty good. It's almost every day. I would just sit there and be amazed. And then Pesci would come in and say, get the f*** out of my chair. Yeah. Hello. I, I think uh, they're going to bleep that. Not everything is Netflix, right? Yeah, and the other things they should have bleeped were the canned lines that uh, former Obama world flax like John Favreau wrote for Brad Pitt. 
who uh, led the show by uh, expressing, uh, on behalf of the entire assemblage of uh, Hollywood stars, their uh, ever-dying support for, <laughs> for uh, conservative uh, interventionists like John Bolton. Really incredible. Thank you to the Academy for this honor of honors. They told me I only have 45 seconds up here, which is 45 seconds more than the Senate gave John Bolton this week. Um, I'm thinking maybe Quentin does a movie about it. In the end, the adults do the right thing. Yeah, maybe uh, John Bolton gets his ear cut off or something uh, by Trump or and a, a Reservoir Dogs Redux, right, Brad? Yeah, it's okay. I mean, it's okay. <laughs> John, Brad Pitt extolling the virtues of John Bolton with Hollywood elites clapping along. Is there anything more delicious? But it, it's okay because he's pretty. I get it. Uh, but no, I don't want to focus on uh, something that happened during the show itself. Rather, uh, the commercials, you know, much like the Super Bowl. What about the commercials? Particularly this one. That's a topic we've discussed on this show and will continue to as it continues to increase in centrality. And that's the 1619 Project. This is the project by left-wing academics backed by the New York Times and apparently a lot of money because they had an ad during the Oscars that would redefine, redefine a lot of things, starting with the founding of this country, not 1776, but 1619 when the first slaves arrived on American soil in Northern Virginia. And this is uh, a organization both the academics as well as the New York Times committed to the black victimology narrative, convicted or committed to the soft bigotry of low expectations, committed to the idea that blacks can do nothing without white liberals lifting them up. And here was their 30 second commercial with uh, uh, popular singer Janelle Monet uh, voicing it. In August 1619, a ship appeared on this horizon near Point Comfort, Virginia. It carried more than 20 enslaved Africans who were sold to the colonists. No aspect of the country we know today has been untouched by the slavery that followed. America was not yet America, but this was the moment it began. America is nothing but uh, her original sin of slavery. And then the extension of that institutional de jury racism in the form of Jim Crow laws. That's America, uh, some total of America. The problem with the 1619 Project, in addition to its ahistorical scholarship, and this has been pointed out by academics, black and white across the political spectrum, the criticism the 1619 Project has received, but it persists, and it's more than persisting, it's insinuating itself in the curriculum of school systems, including where I live in Chicago, and it's a problem. And here's the fundamental problem with it. I'm not afraid, and I don't know too many people of sort of any intellectual heft that are afraid to talk about slavery, to talk about America's failings, to talk about Jim Crow, to talk about institutional racism, as well as de facto segregation. So, for example, we've talked about it in this show. How is Brown v. Board of Education has the, the promise of Brown v. Board of Education, has that been fulfilled seven decades after the decision? Uh, in places like Chicago, but hasn't. Profile two schools in the uh, Tony part of uh, Chicago, Lincoln Park, per a Quillette.com essay last week. And how uh, one road separates majority white and upper class from majority black and Latino and uh, lower income. And how the performance and ability to access a quality education 
is worlds apart, even though the two schools are a mile apart. Well, that's not the promise of ending separate but equal. It isn't. So we can talk about uh, slavery, the impacts of slavery, the impacts of Jim Crow law, as much as anybody, as Ta-Nehisi Coates and anybody with the 1619 Project wants. Here's the question, though. The question I haven't seen posed to them, and I haven't certainly heard any good answer, per, you know, proactively any good answer to address this. Why don't you want to tell the complete history of black Americans? Why only uh, the degradations inflicted upon black Americans through slavery and Jim Crow? Why don't you want to tell the stories of accomplishment, of resilience, of achievement? That seems odd to me. Achievement in the face of incredible institutional legal hurdles that are not the same in 21st century America as they were in 18th century America or 19th century America or 20th century America. They're just not. Why don't you want to tell those stories about all the opportunity that is present in this country and more accessible than it's ever been to people across every demographic? Uh, you know, it, it's it's odd to me that you, you don't want kids to learn about Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or about the black business district in Durham, North Carolina, that uh, thrived uh, even despite Jim Crow laws in the South. That you don't want to know about the Rosen, or you don't want kids to know about the Rosenwald schools. This is Booker T. Washington and Julius Rosenall, white guy, Sears, who... Uh, built thousands of schools in the Jim Crow South. And in those schools, black kids were performing basically at the same academic achievement levels as white kids during Jim Crow. Why don't you want to tell the stories of people who were born slaves and ended up millionaires in this country? I I just, uh, that's the curious, if the left's position is with respect to all of their identitarian politics, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Why don't you want kids of all races to see the examples of resilience and success and achievement from the black community, from black people, men and women, throughout our country's history. Why don't you want to include that in the education? Uh, We need an answer to that. And we're going to keep asking the question because this battle, this intellectual battle, and battle for the vision of what America is and could be, this is going to be joined. The 1619 Project, despite the heft and wealth they have behind them is not going to go on challenge for much longer. People say I'm lazy. Dreaming my life away. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. It's uh, Valentine's Day week, right? Friday, I believe, is Valentine's Day. I don't know these things. Hashtag why Dan Prof is single. But uh, the San Antonio Zoo is about to be the most well-funded zoo in America. And here's why. They're uh, running a few Valentine's Day specials you may want to apprise yourself of. For $5, zoo staff will name a cockroach after your former girlfriend, boyfriend, and feed it to an animal at their... Cry me a cockroach event on Valentine's Day. <laughs> Five bucks for a cockroach named after your uh, former girlfriend or boyfriend. 
Huh. That's popular. If you uh, feel like you need something a little bit more violent to capture your feelings for your ex, uh, you can pay $20 more to have them name a rat and feed it to a reptile instead. Now, that's fun. I used to do that at the local pet store where I grew up just for fun. You know, goldfish to the piranha, rats to the uh, boa. But uh, this seems like more fun. The best part of the deal here is that um, this can this is global in scope. You don't have to be in San Antonio. You don't have to physically witness it because they're uh, streaming the feedings on Facebook Live. So for those of you who find uh, Facebook Live detestable because there's been so many detestable things streamed on Facebook Live, here you go. Here's a uh, perhaps a more positive application. Uh, you'll even receive a certificate to share on social media. <laughs> it's sort of a, it's almost like a, a self-help group uh, to commiserate, to share your certificates for sort of getting some sort of psychic justice against your ex. It uh, only runs through February 13th at 5 p.m., so the uh, eve before, to submit a name. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. I don't know if I like this part of it. Only the first names will be displayed during the event. And I kind of feel like to get, you know, you're the full $5 or $25 of uh, retribution, I don't know, um, psychic vindication, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of Dan's and Joe's and Sally's and Nancy's out there. I feel like you have to have the whole name on display for all to see. And particularly if you have a rundown. I mean, I'm thinking right now, sort of just back of the envelope, probably uh, two to three hundred dollars I can devote to this endeavor to uh, to get some uh, psychic recompense uh, across the many years I've been on this planet and the many. Well, you know, uh, you get it anyway. Uh, San Antonio Zoo, cry me a cockroach event on Valentine's Day. Don't pretend like you're not interested. Five bucks for the cockroach, 25 bucks for the rat. Well, um, feel uh, a little bit of uh, closure, in a sense, on this Valentine's Day, even if you're going to then have a nice romantic dinner or evening with uh, a current a current girlfriend or boyfriend. Thanks for listening. Have a great evening. This is Dan Proft. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.